Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy's Read Through the War of the Ring, the final volume of the history of the War of the Rings. And tonight is a big night because we are going to get to one of the most exciting chapters in this in the in this book, right? One of the one of the most exciting parts of this development, and that is Shelob's Lair, right? Or is it Shelob's Lair, in fact? Um so this is um, going to be kind of amazing, actually, uh, all this stuff. And I see my lamp has delightfully decided to act up again and give everybody seizures. So that's fun. Um, yes. Okay. So this is going to be great. So okay, I think now you guys, everybody can hear me, right? Audio coming through okay? Want to make double sure? I have at least one. Okay. Good. Excellent. Cool. Okay. So... Uh, Tonight we're going to hear about Gollum's unexpected ally because I'm sure it was exciting enough, right, when we were building up to Shelob. And, you know, I thought it was going to be Shelob, and I'm sure you thought it was going to be Shelob. And then, of course, it turns out to be somebody else, right? I mean, man. Okay, anyway, so we'll get there. We left off last week with uh, the Faramir issue, right? We got through Faramir last time, and we got to the point where uh, Tolkien had uh, was kind of working through how to get out of the problem, right? Uh, you know, having decided that, you know, having having kind of painted himself in, in a corner, in a sense, with Faramir, right? Having them captured by and interacting with this... Uh, this general who turns out to be Boromir's brother and everything else, um, but then also turns out to be faithful. And of course, what's he going to do? He's going to take them back, except we get out of that by having Faramir elevated to the point where he is able to make his own call there, right? And he's able to do his own thing uh, with uh, Frodo and and rise up. We were looking last week at that all that really, really cool world-building stuff he was doing with Gondor, right? All that stuff that how sort of the the nation of Gondor as we know it, right, really just kind of began to emerge from Faramir's mouth. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, really the birth of all that stuff. So that was really neat. At the very end of class last time, we were looking at the, uh, the Journey to the Crossroads stuff. And in particular, um, sort of Gollum and how Gollum worked into that, right? We got to the Forbidden Pool. Uh, we noticed how first Gollum was going to come in to rescue them because that was about the only, you know, the, the only, the, his first impulse, right? The first way that he saw out of uh, that, you know, that, that, that difficulty, that challenge uh, was to have Gollum uh, uh, rescue them. And then, of course, it, it, that gets turned on its head, right? In this kind of charming way. And uh, Frodo instead, while in sort of captivity, you know, we, we get this, this turnaround, right? It looks like he's the one in captivity, and yet he's the one who has to rescue Gollum uh, when Gollum comes to the Forbidden Pool. So that's... Uh, uh, that that was all that was all fun, right? And now and you know so now we've got things moving more or less as we expect, right? More or less as um, uh, as the uh, um, uh, it, as the, the the published text goes. So we're gonna jump back into the crossroads here. One of the things again I was really interested in, and it's it's again clearer and clearer, right? As we continue through, one of the things that we've been focusing on a lot that I think we see Tolkien focusing on a lot, uh, especially ever since the Black Gate, right? 
Um, you know, we've seen him working on geography and all that kind of thing. But the main thing that uh, one of the main uh, uh, threads, I think, in this whole section is the dynamics between the sort of the three way dynamics right between Frodo, Sam and Gollum. How does that uh, how does that work? How does the uh, how does the whole Gollum situation work and how does he relate to the others? And that is one of the things that is going to be a, a, of really central importance as we finally get to the point of the betrayal, which is substantially delayed, right, compared to the earlier version of that. And I, I was really grateful uh, that Christopher gave us at the beginning of the Carathungal passage that uh, that long uh, reprinting, right, of that older um Description that first projected outline in which Gollum betrays Frodo to the spiders. Uh, Frodo gets attacked and poisoned by the spiders in his sleep, remember? And then Frodo is left trying to figure out what to do. The orcs come because Gollum runs to fetch them, right? Having seen that things haven't worked out as he hoped that they would, he runs to fetch the orcs and comes back with the orcs, and uh, and they take uh, they take Frodo away. So, um, anyway, so we're we're gonna. Um, we're going to return here now to see how this relationship uh, develops. And it's, it's you know, I have to say that some of these things, I think, in reading these, these drafts actually kind of changes some of the ways in which I read the published text, actually. But we'll, we'll see some of this. Okay, so we're leaving uh, uh, Henneth Anun now. Gollum agreed to this, and the travelers turned back from the road, but Gollum would not rest on the ground in the open woodland. After some search, he chose a large dark ilex with great branches springing together high up from a great bowl like a giant pillar. It grew at the foot of a small bank, leaning a little westward. From the bank, Gollum leaped with ease, I think it's, sorry, typo there, with ease upon the trunk, climbing like a cat and scrambling up into its branches. The hobbits climbed only with the help of Sam's rope, and in that task Gollum would not help. He would not lay a finger on the elven rope. The great branches, springing almost from the same point, made a wide bowl, and here they managed to find some sort of comfort. It grew deep dark under the great canopy of the tree. They could not see the sky or any star. We could sleep snug and safe here if it wasn't for this dratted Gollum, thought Sam. Whether he was really as forgiving as he claimed or not... Gollum at least had no fear of his companions, and curled up like some tree animal, and soon went to sleep, or seemed to. But the hobbits did not trust... Uh, yeah, but, but the hobbit did not... Uh, uh, sorry, I think I, I have another typo here. Um, uh, did not trust one hour's sleep each, all the while Gollum did not stir. Whether the nice fish had given him strength to last for a bit, or what not else, he did not go out to hunt. Shortly before midnight, he woke up suddenly, and they saw his pale eyes unlidded, staring in the darkness. Okay. Um, yeah, Jennifer, they have come a long way from being suspicious of sleeping in buildings over one story high, right? And of course, we remember Sam's reticence to sleep up on the flat, right? And this, of course, is significantly worse than sleeping in a flat, right? That at least was a a, a, a legitimate platform, right? Um, whereas uh, uh, this is just in the sort of in the crux of the tree up there at the top. Um, this description of them climbing the tree is interesting. I mean, this, of course, is one thing. It's not quite like that in the text. It's not an ilex uh, that they sleep in. It's a whole oak, as I recall, right, in the published text, but um, they they do sleep up in a tree still in the published text, so that concept uh, is, uh, is there. We have the uh, alluding back to the elvish rope here, right, which we don't get in the published text again once we, you know, once Sam coils his rope back up, um, we 
almost never get a reference to it again. Um, Sam does cut a length from it in order to make a belt for Frodo later on, but I don't recall any other reference uh, to his elvish rope. Um, after uh, again, after the, the the incident with tying Gollum up with it, right? Um, but uh, uh, yeah, okay. So uh, yeah, and Nancy, you're right. At least you don't have to, they don't have to throw their dishes down from the top of the tree. So there's uh, there's that. Um, uh, yeah, Tony. That's interesting. Tony is is interested in the great tree leaning westward, right? Uh, you know, I I'm not sure how much to read into that either, Tony. I mean, I, I know it's I don't want to get too uh, you know sort of metaphysical about it exactly, but um, but at the same time, it does present a kind of uh, visual image, right? Of uh, of them. You know the tree like leaning away from Mordor, right? At 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 the very least, you get this sense. I think of, you know, like I mean, of course, it's you know sloped as well, right? So that's it's not like any strange or unusual thing. But uh, but yeah, the the whole the reference to the tree leaning westward does kind of give me the sense of like the tree kind of shrinking away in a sense. Um, but. Uh, yeah. Kate, that is interesting. You're right. It is one of the few things he keeps after throwing everything away. Yeah, yeah, there is that too. Um, yeah, the rope is one of the easiest things to keep, of course. Um, good. Okay, so what else uh, What else do you notice here? First, notice that we, we get the complaining, right, from Sam. Um, we get some fairly clear um, emphasis, right, on Sam's distrust. Right, we could sleep snug and safe here if it wasn't for this dratted Gollum. Um, whereas Gollum has no fear, uh, you know, so he just goes to sleep right away. Doesn't show any concern. He doesn't show any distrust. But you'll notice that there's this sort of suspicion that Sam has of Gollum. Right, uh, this question of is he really as forgiving as he claims? He says it's all it's all fine, right? You know, he bears no ill will for the whole Forbidden Pool incident, right? He understands and everything is well. Um, again, that by itself, as we recall, is kind of a complicated moment, right? Where Frodo himself knows, he acknowledges that this is going to look bad, right? Um, and yet, uh, he is doing it for good reasons. He is, in fact, rescuing Gollum. He is, in fact, saving Gollum's life. Uh, so the question is, how much w- how much will uh, uh, Gollum comprehend? Right? How much will uh, how much goodwill? How much? Uh, you know, how accurately is he going to assess that situation, um, or is he just going to be resentful uh, because of what happened and how he was treated? Um, and Sam obviously suspects the latter, and yet we see this total quietness from Gollum, right? He's seems to be at peace. He's not hungry. See, he's not restless and prowling about and going off to hunt for himself. He's not looking at them. He's not grumbling or any of those things, right? Um, he's just, uh, 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 everything seems fine, right? Um, but we see Sam's very, uh, distinct unease. Yeah. Kate, it is interesting. Both of the hobbits are not trustful, Right. Um, they're not going to leave Gollum on his own. They're not going to both go to sleep. Um, and it's not to watch out for orcs or something. It's Gollum that they seem to be really focused on and really concerned about here. Right. Um, and that and Carita, I totally agree that pale eyes, unlidded staring in the darkness. That is 
very creepy. I absolutely agree. Um, uh, it's the only cue that we get in this passage about what's going on with Gollum, right? Um, that he wakes up and there's Gollum's eyes just staring at him in the darkness. Um, and we're not told what's behind those eyes, right? Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so then we get the advent of a meteorological effect, right? They were steadily climbing. Looking back, they could see now the roof of the forests they had left, lying like a huge dense shadow spread out under the sky. The air seemed heavy, no longer fresh and clear, and the stars were blurred, and when towards the end of the night the moon climbed slowly above Efelduath, it was ringed about with a sickly yellow glare. They went on until the sky above the approaching mountains began to grow pale. Gollum seemed to know well enough where he was. He stood for a moment, nose upward and sniffing. He beckoned them. The be- beckoning to them, he hurried forward. Following him wearily, they began to climb a great hogback of land. The initial descriptions... We're, this passage comes right after we just described thunder being heard off in the distance, right? Um, it seems... Now... Uh, Christopher, this is another one of the, okay, this isn't one of those places where I think that I did, where I just disagree with Christopher Tolkien's reading. Um, he, remember he has that note, uh, around here where he says in his own commentary, um, so it might sound like the darkness from Mordor grew out of this, you know, description of a storm that he seems to be having here. Um, and that, you know, the, like the idea kind of came to him as he's describing his storm. And he's like, but that's not, but that's not true. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, sh- I mean, he's right. I mean, he points to the fact that this concept of darkness from Mordor was already there. Um, and so of course that's a very good point. It's not that the whole, the concept is suddenly coming to him. And yet, um, it does seem important, right? It does seem uh, uh, seem interesting that when it arises, it arises as a thunderstorm, right? It comes in, it begins like a description of a normal media. Uh, let me say it this way. If it weren't for the fact that we already had those notes that Christopher Tolkien pointed to, we would think that it was. Right? There's very good reason to think uh, what he's telling us not to think, right? Because that is, in fact, exactly what it sounds like. And I think that that effect is a really interesting and important one, right? That the way he describes in the in the narrative is it, it, there's something weird going on, that sickly yellow glare uh, around the moon as it climbs, I love that effect, right? That's a that's really neat, especially, of course, in the context of Minas Morgul, rising right above Minas Morgul as it is. Um, and yet, the, uh, uh, the, the, um, that sense of an oncoming storm, not a, uh, not just like some kind of oppressive darkness moving like a curtain over the sky or something. That's not how he describes it. And I think that that's important, right? In, uh, in showing the advent, you know, the way granted, you know, granted what Christopher says that he had already conceived of the idea of a darkness from Mordor. It doesn't change the fact that it's really cool and interesting to see that when it comes up, you know, when he came to actually describing it, what he describes is what sounds like the gathering of a normal thunderstorm, which then turns out not to be a normal thunderstorm, right? Um, because, of course, that seems to, to map itself 
really well onto the uh, you know the gathering thunder and the breaking storm because the armies are just about to start marching out right um, so anyway I, I just I think that uh, I don't know I, I felt that Christopher was a little bit strong in being like nothing to see here nothing to see at the there is something to see there right no, no it's not occurring to him for the first time here but there's still kind of something to see here um, uh, and I think that that's uh, that that's really interesting. Um, now, Tony points out that this is a pretty good description of the early stages of a volcanic eruption with the dust and gases blurring out the sun um, and the thunder in the distance could be small explosions in the volcano. Um, yeah, I, it, I agree. It, it's, uh, you know, Tony, I was kind of reflecting on this as well. Um, and I, I talked about this a little bit at the time um, this past fall. Uh, I visited Hawaii for the first time. I'd never been to Hawaii before. Um, and so my first time on a, on a volcanic Island, right. Um, you know, there I was in, in, you know, this gorgeous paradise and I'm thinking not of paradise, but of Mordor all the time, everywhere I went, I'm like, this place looks like Mordor, uh, because it did like, you know, like right around the, you know, of course the beaches are beautiful, but then you turn inland and inland was all this like volcanic rock like this you know this rugged uh terrain with a little bit of gr- of green here and there but in places just huge expanses i mean you could have you could have done mordor shots there easily it looked exactly like the descriptions of mordor so tony i was uh, you know there are ways in which i've been reflecting on that too i was like did tolkien visit did he ever go was he ever on a volcanic island cuz i'm not sure he ever was i i don't um uh, I don't think, I don't recall, I mean, he did not travel very far. Um, I mean, that trip to Switzerland that he took was pretty much his furthest trip away from home that I recall. Um, uh, anyway, so um, it's, it's, uh, it is really interesting, Tony, that he, um, he gets, um, he gets volcanic stuff uh, as accurately as he does, I think. Um yeah, and Jennifer, I don't, I don't even know if there are volcanoes in South Africa. But if there were, he, he, I mean, he said he barely retained any memories from from South Africa, and he was really little. He was like what three when he moved out of South Africa and, and came. So, I, I mean, I he was really small. I remember nothing from when I was three. Uh, no, okay, I have like two isolated memories uh, uh, from when I was three. But seriously, I, I, Tolkien uh, uh, talked about it, and he does not um, said that he didn't retain any memories, any, any you know, many memories from there. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, it is, uh, Tony, I do find that fairly remarkable. And I do suspect with the yellow glare uh, and possibly even, as you say, the thunder in the distance, that that's what he's describing. Um, but of course, to the hobbits, it's it sounds like thunder. That's what they take it for, right? Um, let's keep going. Gollum away a large part of the day. Reach crossroads, in fact, owing to difficulty, not until evening. Start at dusk about 5.30 and do not reach crossroads and headless statue until morning. Gollum in a great state of fright. Weather changed. Sky above Efelduoth, absolute black. Clouds or smoke? Drifting on an east wind. Rumbles? Sun hidden. In this darkness they get out of the wood and see Minas Morgul. It shines amid a deep gloom as if by an evil moon, though there is no moon. I love that. As if by an evil moon. Horror hobbits. Weight of ring. Veil of Morgul. 
Where road went away to the north shoulder and bases of the fortress, they turned aside and climbed away southward to other side of V, i.e. Vale of Morgul. Frodo and Sam see a track. They are already some way up, and the gates of Minas Morgul frown at them when there is a great roll and rumble, blast of thunder, rain. Out of the gates comes host led by Black Rider. Okay. Um... Yeah, I agree, Arthur. Horror hobbits uh, um, uh, <laughs> does this. Uh, Arthur thinks it sounds like something that Morgoth would twist regular hobbits into, right? Yes, he tortures the hobbits until they become horror hobbits. Uh, maybe something like that. Oh, that's interesting, Tom. Tom Hillman says that uh, uh, Mount Vesuvius uh, went off in March of 1944. He could possibly have seen new- newsreels. Um uh, and Tom, I think it would be even more likely that he could at least have read accounts of it, right? Read descriptions of the of the eruption. So it is possible that he um, he had you know that that was kind of sufficiently you know a big enough story that he might have been interested in that in those descriptions, hearing somebody. Uh, um, and this is another thing, right? I mean, you read the descriptions of things often in newspapers back before the. Uh, you know, the, the TV era had really begun. Right. And, uh, it's, um, uh, there's often, you know, a lot of gorgeous description. Uh, I'm thinking of of course, my mind immediately jumps to remember the newspaper articles in Dracula, right. And there's the descriptions of the great storm and the sky before the sea and the waves rolling in, right. Really painting the picture. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. Um, so notice that, however, besides all of this volcano stuff, which I think clearly the volcano stuff is happening, um, there also seems to be genuine thunder, right? At least, uh, you know, blast of thunder followed by rain, right? Uh, comes in. So that certainly does suggest that there's some actual, uh, stuff going on here. I love the imagery though. Um, notice so the weather has changed. We get the, the blackness of the sky. Um, Tolkien has chosen some really, really interest, like a really interesting moment sort of as a way to introduce this whole thing. The way that he t- makes the crossroads uh, into this uh, remarkable transition, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's a crossroads, right? And this is the moment where they really, they are entering into Sauron's domain here. Um, and you can see how that gets emphasized uh, through this whole process. Um, they reach the crossroads, and at that point the weather changes, right? I, that image of the sky above the mountains of shadow are black, right? Uh, and it drifts over with the wind, the sun is hidden, and then beneath the darkness, right? So there's this absolute blackness off to the east in the sky and underneath, except for one thing, right? The evil glow of Minas Morgul beneath the blackness of the clouds. That is uh, uh, a really, really striking image as they're leaving the daytime, as they're leaving the light. And of course, we get the light shining on the headless statue, right? And everything. We remember, of course, that was one of the first things he came up with uh, in the whole Ithilian um, concept, right? Yeah, Tony, it does sound very abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. Yeah, yeah, it really does sound like that. Um, uh, 
In fact, yeah, I mean, Tony, I was just thinking, I wasn't thinking of Dante specifically, but I was just thinking the same thing there. Um, the way that he describes this, it does give this whole moment, right? Um, this moment at the crossroads and approaching Minas Morgul and Mordor beyond um, this very kind of descent into the underworld kind of feel, right? Uh, with the way that this is, uh, you know, in addition to, uh, it's not just going into the darkness and into the unknown, right? I mean, it's that as well, but it's also this, like, going forward into the teeth of the storm uh, as well. Um, yeah, yeah. And, Mike, I agree. It is interesting that Minas Morgul is glow-in-the-dark rather than dark, right? Because um, you're right, light is almost always a good thing uh, in Tolkien. Um, can anybody else think of any... Other examples of evil light uh, is a question that Mike uh, Moore was just asking, and I think it's a really good question. Evil light in Tolkien. Gollum's eyes, the pale light of Gollum's eyes, the pale light that surrounds the Morgul blade in the hand of the ringwraith as seen by Frodo with the ring on. Um, the... Um, uh, Let's see. The the candles in the dead marshes, Nancy. Yeah, I was just thinking of that one too. Yeah, Jennifer just thought that as well. Um Yeah, oh good, Matt. The the light from the barrow, the the greenish light that surrounds them in the barrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. The corpse light, yeah. Um We do get So yeah, we do have some. Now, the red light from Baradur and the the red light that we see up in the tower of Kirathungal, that I would say is different, right? I, w- I would say that that's different mostly because when it's red, that's like firelight, right? Now, and fire, which can be turned to evil purposes. Um, that seems to me different than like a, a radiance. <laughs> There's me playing the synonyms, right? Um, yeah, I would put red light in a different category. Maybe that's not fair, but I would put red light in a different category, whereas things like, um, you know, so, okay, I guess then you could argue against the candles, but the lights in the dead marshes seem to me in the category of at least uncanny, if not actively corrupted light. Um, the barrow light is a great example. The light from Gollum's eyes, which is, they're, they're not just, they don't just reflect light. They emit Light Again, remember the description in The Hobbit as Bilbo is running up the path behind him and he can see the light of the... He can see the tunnel in front of them from behind Gollum, right? Because of the light that's shining out from his, uh, from his head. Um, now, several people are referring to the unlight from Ungoliant, but that's not an example of this. The unlight is darkness, right? She takes the light and she turns it into an unlight, um, but it is not a light, it is an unlight. Um, it is it is like darkness, except the difference between the unlight and darkness. The reason he doesn't use the word darkness there is that it is not mere absence of light. It is a a solid thing, right? It is a darkness that has substance, like light has substance, right? Like light is a positive thing. Normally, darkness is merely a negative thing. It's just the absence of light. But the unlight of Ungoliant is more 
than just an absence, right? It is a positive darkness, and that's why he coins the new word. But it's not light. It's not. It, it's so. It's not like these other kinds of lights that we're uh, that we're that we're talking about here. Um, yeah. Okay. Darkness visible, as Milton would say. Tom, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's in when he's describing, isn't it? In the same context, when Milton is describing like the 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 dark flames of hell, right? Isn't that the uh, the the or am I just connecting those two things? The dark flames that uh, uh, that don't shed light uh, in hell was always one of my uh, one of the things I was really fascinated by. Yeah, it, it's in that description of hell. That's what I thought. Um, okay, yeah. Anyway, all right. Um, so this is really cool. And the host comes out right here. The other thing I would just notice briefly is Gollum in a great state of fright, right? Trying to understand the context here. Um, that is Gollum is cowed. here. The Gollum's fright seems to be perfectly genuine, right? Um, he seems to be terrified by the onset of the storm, both metaphor and literal onset of the of the uh, um, of the storm, right? Uh, he is leading Frodo into a trap, but he himself still fears the Dark Lord, and he fears that they're all going to get caught, right? So, um, Gollum's great state of fright, perfectly legitimate, it seems here. We don't get much of a reaction from the hobbits here, right? They're not cowed by the storm. Um, which is interesting. We've seen them impacted by similar kinds of things. Remember the storm on the ledge, right? When uh, 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 Sam's or maybe Frodo's, depending on which draft we're on, um, like when the darkness closes around them and they can't see anything until the rope comes down. Um, that's, uh, that even that storm seems to kind of impact them more here. Uh, uh, the lack of a, um, the lack of a sort of a negative, um, uh, uh, reaction by the hobbits is kind of interesting to me here. Okay. When he returns, he says they ought to start. Hobbits think something has worried him, or something. They are suspicious, but have to agree. The early evening, changed to afternoon, is threatening and overcast. At evening, they come to the crossroads in a wood. Sun goes down blood red in west over Osgiliath. Terrible darkness begins. This, of course, you see, is another, as we recall, is another draft of this stuff, as we see, of course, uh, uh, Tolkien reworking this, and of course we see that one of the things he's reworking is the timing and the chronology. Of course we know that Tolkien has been sort of struggling to regularize the chronology of all this stuff as we go along. Uh, anyway, okay, darkness came early to the silent woods and before the fall of night. They halted, weary, for they had walked seven leagues or more from Hinethanun. Frodo lay and slept away the night on the deep mold beneath an ancient tree. Sam beside him was more uneasy. He woke many times, but there was never a sign of Gollum, who had slipped off as soon as the others had settled to rest. Whether he had slept by himself in some hole nearby, or had wandered restlessly prowling through the night, he did not say, but he returned with the first glimmer of light and roused his companions. 
Must get up. Yes, they must, he says. Long ways to go still, south and east. Hobbits must make haste. That day passed much the same as the day before had done, except that the silence seemed deeper. The air grew heavy, and it began to be stifling under the trees. It felt as if thunder was brewing. Gollum often paused, sniffing the air, and then would mutter to himself and urge them to greater speed. Um, now, we're told... Uh, uh, Tolkien mentions more explicitly, and this is one of the... Um, this is one of the parts that I found sort of interesting... Frodo and Sam are more explicitly suspicious of Gollum in this stage, right? Between Henneth Anun and Kirith Ungol, um, it seemed to me that we got more explicit references to their suspiciousness, even his hastening them, right? The hurry that he's in. Why is he in such a hurry? Um, and in the published text the sense, or at least the conclusion I've always, uh, uh, I've always drawn is, um, that, uh, um, he, you know, like, he, he knew that things were gathering, right? He could sense that things were in motion and he wants to get past Minas Morgul before anybody emerges, right? Before anything happens as he feels like things are about to happen. Um, but here this, the, 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 his haste itself is suspicious, right? What does he do? Where is he gone? Why is he away this whole time, right? Um, and Sam is explicitly suspicious of uh, of Gollum's absence, right? Um, and I think we have every reason to see, we have every reason to believe Gollum has gone and, and connected with the spiders, right, while they have been resting. And he is hurrying them along because the spiders are waiting, right? And he's trying to spring the trap as he's, as he's coordinated it. Um, yeah, very good. Uh, let me just pause for one second. I see some people on the Twitch chat who are uh, confused. So if you're watching on Twitch, you're welcome to watch on Twitch. You will hear me interacting with other people, the people with whom I'm inter... I am watching the Twitch chat, so if you ask a question there, I may see it. Um, but if you want to participate with everybody else, uh, the place to do that is in the GoToWebinar session that I'm also using. If you go to MythGuard.org and go to the Academy section, you'll see the page for the War of the Ring class, and on there is a link to register for the webinar, and you could get in and join us. Uh, from there, so uh, that should all that should all be there. Just good to remind uh, uh, people every once in a while how this works, and not assume everybody is familiar with this process. Um, okay, well let's move forward because I want to get to Kirithungol because Kirithungol is pretty awesome. Um, I uh, I really again I really enjoy Tolkien or Christopher's giving us Tolkien's letters uh, on this, um, and of course these are letters. That I, you know, was familiar with, of course, in the context of Tolkien's published letters. But it's really fun to think about them now, you know, in this, in this moment, right now that we've been looking really carefully at this text and how the text is unfolding, we have this sort of new insight into these letters, right? Because we know what he's referring to here. So here's Tolkien saying. I've taken advantage of a bitter cold gray week to write, but struck a sticky patch. 
all that I had sketched or written before proved of little use at times, motives, it's, as times, motives, etc. have all changed. However, at last, with very great labor and some neglect of other duties, I have now written or nearly written all the matter up to the capture of Frodo in the High Pass on the very brink of Mordor. Now I must go back to the other folk and try to bring things to the final crash with some speed. Do you think Shelob is a good name for a monstrous spider creature? It is, of course, only she plus lob equals spider. But written as one, it seems to be quite noisome. That was always my favorite line from that letter. It seems to be quite noisome. Adding to this the letter, on the following day, May 22nd, uh, Monday, 22nd May, he said, It was a wretched cold day yesterday, Sunday. I worked very hard at my chapter. It is most exhausting work, especially as the climax approaches and one has to keep the pitch up. No easy level will do, and there are all sorts of minor problems of plot and mechanism. I wrote and tore up and rewrote most of it a good many times, but I was rewarded this morning as both CSL and CW, C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams, of course, thought it an admirable performance, and the latest chapters the best so far. Gollum continues to develop into a most intriguing character. All right. Um, uh, so thinking about this, one thing that I would uh, that I would point to is he says that he's hit a sticky patch, right? This is really difficult. So on the one hand, we can see the differences between Tolkien's reflections on the Kirith passage compared to, say, the chapter on the ants, which you remember, you know, it's easy to say that that thing wrote itself, but the way in which almost in one go, right? Like the um, the first existing manuscript that we have of the Treebeard chapter is almost identical word for word with the published text. Like the whole thing just came right away and scarcely needed a single bit of revision, right? And apparently that has not been the case with uh, uh, with the, the, the Kirithungal passage. So the question is, where does the problem lie? What was he struggling with exactly? And as we're going to see, what he struggles with most here and seems to be struggling with kind of, inc- or seems to be kind of bothering him increasingly are the logistics, right? Um, as we're going to see, one of the big issues that he's finally going to have to resolve is the how does the pass go, right? He had originally said there's there's one stair and then there's the tunnel and then there's another stair and then there's the pass up at the top, right? And he's going he's gonna to change his mind about that as things emerge. But I think that if, if we approach this, thing, you know, if we, we hear him say this, oh man, this was really, st- this was really hard, right? I, you know, this was exhausting to try to write the, uh, instead of being smooth and fluid and easy, um, if we think of the passage as labored itself, I think it gives us a false impression, right? Instead, what seems to be happening, the difficulties that Tolkien is running into is not the creation process, right? It's not the, the discovery of the story. He's discovering the story. What he's having a hard time doing is taking the story that he's discovering and fitting it with uh, the, 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 the logistics that he's already had, right? He's planned it out. He's planned out the logistics. Um, but then he, uh, um, uh, but then he, he, he needs to make it fit, 
right? But again, what's causing the problem is not the difficulty with which the story is coming to him. In fact, in a sense, it's the ease with which the story is coming to him. When he, once he gets to the point of the, the spider fight on the top of the mountain, right? It's the... Uh, the way that the spider fight comes to him and what happened once the spider fight begins and, 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 and what comes from that again, as that sort of flows through um, when he gets, when he gets to that point that he then realizes, okay, wait, now it won't work the way that I'd planned it out before. Right. So again, the problem is not the flow of the story. The problem is it no longer fits his earlier projections. Right. So all of the logistical thinking that he'd done and the little maps and stuff that he had drawn, that stuff is, um, uh, is 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 no longer relevant. Remember a while back we were noticing that he he talks about uh, when he talks about writing the story, um, he talks about having to start with a map, right? But of course, we were noticing as we were going through the Treason of Isengard, especially uh, in the early parts of the War of the Ring, um, but especially back in the Treason of Isengard. He says you start with the map first, but the evidence that we see of his actual story developing is that that's not, in fact, what he does at all, right? He starts with the story, and then the map fills in as he goes along, right? As he discovers these lands, he realizes uh, they're very different, and in fact, we saw that the, the, the map, the original concept of the map was completely determined, uh, but it was just this sort of, this string of story beads on a line, Right. You know, these incidents that he had, these story elements that he had planned, and he was just stringing them together on a map. Right. Um, What we're seeing here is what happens when he does it the other way around, when he does it the way that he says that he should do it. Right. First, have the map and have that clear in your head, then write the story. Well, that's what he did. Right. We saw him struggling with Kirithungal and uh, and Minas Morgul. Right. Is it is it. The Black Gate, okay, no, it's not the Black Gate. The Black Gate is a different thing, right? Different past. Kirithungal is over here. Minas Morgul, maybe it's up here. No, 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 it's down over here, right? Is it up on the hill? Is it down low? Is the pass to the south? Is the pass to the north, right? And he'd already worked, and he'd drawn pictures. And he's, he's figured all that stuff out, right? So he figures all those things out uh, and has it clear, has a clear picture in his head, and then he goes to write the story. And that would seem to make it easier, right? Good thing he had all that stuff worked out in advance, except... As he's writing the story, the story he's writing doesn't fit the map. And now he's got to go back and say, oh, no, now i got to rethink that whole thing and redo stuff and everything. And it's, um, uh, and that, so it's, it's kind of fun, right? In, in, in my conclusion that I draw, at least one conclusion, I think, that we can draw uh, from his struggles here in this passage is that actually not only is it not true that he does map first and story second. When he does do map first and story second, it messes him up, right? He's actually much better off uh, just letting the story go. Um, had he not sweated it so much with Minas Morgul and the... Had he just gone and uh, just start with a set of stairs and, and let the story unfold from there, I think the whole thing would have been less sticky for him, actually. Uh, it would have flowed much more easily. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway, let's uh, let's go on. So, up the stairs we go. Uh, here's his initial outline, and of course, as you know, I love his outline projections. I love seeing, uh, seeing uh, watching as the story is unfolding in front of him, right? 
Okay, description of the endless long black lines right ahead. That's the lines of armies coming out of Minas Morgul, right? Because they're just getting up to the stairs, and that's when the armies start uh, uh, start coming out. He halts and sweeps glance round valley. Frodo's temptation to put on ring. At last the host passes away. The storm is bursting. They are going to Osgiliath, and the crossing of the river, he said. Will Faramir be across? Will army slay them? Will army of Black Riders slay Faramir and his men, I assume, is the, is the them in question there, is how the pronouns work. Added, long journey up, Frodo uses file. They pass into the tunnel. Halfway through, they find it blocked with webs. Gollum refuses to say what they are. Frodo goes ahead and hews a path with Sting. Sam helps. At other end, after long struggle in dark, he finds a stair. They can no longer see into valley, as sheer walls of rock are on either side. The stair goes up, up endlessly. Occasional webs across path. All right. So this is the outline that he's building from the conception that he already had, which was stair, tunnel, stair. Right? Um... And notice the main difference between the stairs, the two sets of stairs here, as we're describing, is that one of them is uh, uh, one of them is overlooking the cliff, right? So they're actually looking down on the valley, and, and there's a, there's a sheer drop on the side of the steps. And then after they pass through the tunnel, they're inside. You know, both there's walls on both sides of the uh, of the stairs. Notice how there are more webs on those stairs, and I completely agree with Christopher Tolkien's interpretation that he mentions in a note later on, that the uh, the, the, the implication here seems to be, because remember, this place is lousy with spiders, or there are spiders everywhere, and that was always the initial conception. Kirathungal, when it was the main pass into Mordor, was full of giant spiders. Um, so, this is still in the full of giant spiders. The, the solitary great spider has not yet emerged, uh, literally or figuratively, right? So, um, yeah, the implication is that we have, um, we have this, or as Christopher Tolkien says quite memorably, the whole pass is alive with spiders, right? Which is a, a super creepy way of uh, describing it. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, good. Um <laughs> All right. Um, now, <laughs> Arthur is wondering if they're climbing single file. Oh, man, Arthur. Um, <laughs> anyway, but thank you, Arthur, for reminding me about the file, um, because that's one of the things that I thought was really interesting here in that moment there. Long journey up, Frodo uses file. Now, journey, he's not 100% sure about journey, right? Whether or not that's uh, the right word there, whether that's the word that's actually being used. Um, but um, he... But still, long up does sound like they're they're moving up the stairs. So, my question is, what's Frodo using the file for? Frodo uses file. Um, it seems to be separated from the uh, kind of semi-confrontation with the Black Rider, right? The temptation to put on the ring. The host, the host has already passed away, 
right? The storm is bursting. They're going to Oscuth. So they're commenting on this, right? And then Frodo's using the file. So if they're already in commentary mode, right, as the, you know, there's Frodo at least internally commenting on it, wondering if Faramir's going to be safe and uh, commenting on, you know, observing that the the army is heading towards Osgiliath. Um Surely he's not now pulling out the file, you know, putting his hand on the file or pulling out the file in order to help him resist the will of the Witch King. Um, so, what is he lighting his way up the? He can't be using it against spiders because they're not being. We haven't seen any, seen any uh, spiders yet. Um, so I'm not really sure what he's meant to be using the file for. It's possible, Stephen, that they are just using it for light. I agree, you know, Stephen is pointing out that, of course, if if these are narrow and uneven steps and there's a cliff drop right there, you, w- you would really want to be able to see, uh, you know, feeling your way uh, up a, a set of stairs in that, uh, in that manner would be a little bit um, questionable, right? Um, so, uh, uh, that that seems like, but that but that's interesting, right? Because we haven't seen this. Um, we haven't seen the file be used for anything like this. Um, that is mirror illumination, right? And in fact, of course, in the published text, uh, we're never going to see the file be used as mirror illumination, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Kate, I agree. It may might just be a note that the file has a part to play in this action. Um, you're right, Kate. Since this is something that is added, like something in the margin, it's not part of. Uh, it's not sort of organically part of the outline, right? Um, that it uh, it could simply be him make you know like note to self incorporate the file into this process. So maybe it does refer back to Frodo's use of the uh, of the file for. Uh, um, uh, for for resisting the will of the Witch King after the fact, right? He thought of that after the fact. That's that's possible. Um, oh, hey, Vince, I see you made it into GoToWebinar. Excellent. Um, okay. Continuing with the outline. Gollum hangs back. They begin to have suspicion of him. Description of the spiders? There dwelt great creatures in spider form such as lived once of old in the land of the elves in the west that is now under the sea, such as Baron fought in the dark ravines of the mountains of terror above Doriath. All light they snared and wove into impenetrable webs. Pale-fleshed, many-eyed, venomous they were, older and more horrible than the black creatures of Mirkwood. Already Gollum had met them. He knew them well, but thought to use them for his own purposes." They came out at last to head of the stair. The road opens a little. There is still an ominous glare. They see the road, clearly, through a narrow cleft, and now the right wall sinks, and they look down into a vast darkness, the great cleft which was the head of Morgul Vale. On the left, sharp jagged pinnacles, full of black crevices, and high upon one tip, a small black tower. Okay. Um, several things here. Um, yeah, Tara, Tara points out that it seems a little late in the day to begin to be suspicious of Gollum, and right, and we've seen them already be suspicious. In fact, as I said, I would argue a little even more suspicious than they are in the published text. So, yeah, um, but, uh, I, so I, I certainly take that to mean suspicious that he is in the midst of betraying them here, like that this is the betrayal, uh, you know, betrayal currently in progress, uh, going on that, uh, that, that he's acting, um, 
particularly dodgy. The way he's hanging back, right? No, no, you guys go first. This will be good, right? Um, uh, by the way, I love this. We've seen this kind of thing so many times in Tolkien's outlines, right? Where he starts jotting an outline down and then the the thing grows, right? And he ends up doing the full thing instead of just outlining it. Um, but this is the first time I remember him uh, sort of cueing himself, right? Description of the spiders? Maybe like this, right? And then the prose rolls out, right? Should I describe the spiders? Yeah, here it here it comes. There dwelt great creatures in spider form, such as lived once of old. Uh, and you can you can hear it, right? It's uh, um, their age long she had dwelt, right? That's the same. Uh, we get the same kind of tone uh, and uh, uh, and um, you know and sort of syntax and 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 uh, uh, feeling there uh, in this prose that we get in this in the parallel passage in the published text. Um, uh, yeah, and Kate, yeah, you can't you can't keep the Baron and Luthien tale out, right? We get these explicit references to Baron here. Um, notice, of course, we have no conversation on the steps of Kirathongol yet. Uh, no hint of Sam's recollection of that moment, right? Those two things, the moment when they stop on the stairs of Kirathongol in the published text, of course, hugely important moment, right? Both. The conversation between Frodo and Sam, really important conversation that they have, and then, very importantly, the interaction with Gollum, right? That moment of tenderness and near repentance from Gollum, Sam waking up out of sleep and yelling at him, right? Um, Tolkien will later in his letters identify that this is the moment of no return, right? When Gollum uh, pulls back and responds to Sam's rebuke in that moment, that's the moment when... Uh, that that's the moment when Gollum's soul is lost, right? He is he he. There is no turning back from. That was his last chance. He almost turned up to that moment. He could still repent. He could still come back um, uh, to the light and repent of his betrayal and turn away from uh, from evil. After this, he can't. So huge, huge moment, right? Uh, in the text, not there yet. N- not neither of them there yet. Uh, and that's of course one of the things that I am most keenly looking at, right, when, when we read this, how that how that grows. Well, we're not going to get to it. We're not going to get to it tonight. Um, by the way, of course, as you'll notice, the Kirithungal chapter is enormous in this book, and not only is it long, it's really cool, and it's really substantial. Um, I have no aspirations to get more than halfway through that chapter tonight, actually. Uh, but we'll carry on. Anyway, okay. Notice, however, about this description. He's not recycling, right? As far as relationship to the Silmarillion, the spiders, they are not Silmarillion spiders recycled, right? These are the same spiders. They are spiders such as the ones that Baron fought in the dark ravines of the mountains of terror above Doriath, right? Um, These are descendants of Ungoliant explicitly, Right, her name is not mentioned here, um, but all light they snared and wove into impenetrable webs. That very ungoliantish uh, tactic, right, of absorbing light, taking light, and weaving the light into webs of darkness. Right, that is, we see these spiders do that, and so. Um, uh, their connection with Ungoliant is uh, um, is very clear, um, and 
Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, Yana, it is interesting that we do get the, the parallel to Sting being used in action for the first time in The Hobbit, right? Yeah, uh, with the cutting of the webs, right? That's the first time uh, he... Well, I mean, he threatens Gollum with it, right? But but we know that his fight with that spider uh, was a major turning point in his career, right? Um, and it is for, for Frodo and them here, too. Um, and Kate, yes, these spiders are more than the Mirkwood spiders. The Mirkwood spiders were like a recycling of the Silmarillion spiders. They were a memory of those spiders that Baron fought, right? These are not a memory. These are explicitly an upgrade. These are, um, uh, these are the same spiders, in fact. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Bruce, you were right. Um, Ungoliant is in fact named in the published text. Um, in the published text, it calls uh, the published te- in, the, in the published text the narrator calls Shelob the last child of Ungoliant to trouble the unhappy world. So, yes, yes. Um, Yana, yes, no, he does use Sting. Remember, he stabs the troll in the foot. I'm pretty sure that that happened still. In when we got to there in the Treason of Isengard. So he has used Sting before. Um, at the very least, it did the troll stabbing thing. Um, but anyway. Um, but I agree. This is still the, 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 the parallel with Bilbo, with the use of the uh, of Sting on the you know the webs of horror. That's still clearly, clearly a thing. So Gollum had met them and he knows them, but he thought to use them for his purposes. Um, Tara, we don't know much of the story of Gollum's previous encounters with them, how exactly he came to know them. But he, uh, um, uh, but, uh, but he's said to know them well. And that's been part of the story from the beginning. Um, I almost got the impression... No, I think there was a reference still to him being actively in collusion with the spiders, even in that early draft, even in that early outline. Um, the story foreseen from Lorien, right, that, that part? Um, I think that that was true even then. Although, when the action was described, there seemed to be... a it seemed to be... He seemed to be a little bit less actively involved with them. That is, it was about getting the hobbits to go in, knowing that the spiders were, like, setting them up for attack by the spiders, and then trying to take advantage of the attack, right? Um, Rather than, you know, him actually meeting with the spiders and them formulating a plan together, which now seems to be very clearly the case. He is in conversation with them. He presumably has sneaked away... Uh, to touch base with them right on that night when he was away and they were suspicious. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tara, we don't know if they speak like the Mirkwood spiders. Um, we're not... Um, uh, we're not told exactly how he communicates with them. Um, all we know is that he'd met them and knows them well, so I'm not really sure what that implies about their communication forms exactly. Um, or if they're, you know, speaking in verbal language really at all, I don't know. Um, 
this that second paragraph, um, the ominous glare, Stephen. I agree that it is interesting. A glare, not a glow, right? Um, I think that the it's a glare, not a glow, because the glare is from the sky. I think I think that glare is a Mount Doom glare, as opposed to the glow, which is the glow a Minas, a Minas Morgul glow, right? I think I might be wrong about that, but I think so. Um, but anyway, this sort of terrain description, right? Uh, they see the road clearly through a narrow cleft. Now the right wall sinks, and they look down into a vast darkness, the great cleft which was the head of Morgul Vale. On the left, sharp, jagged pinnacles full of black crevices, and high upon one tip, a small black tower. Um, this outline is, as I recall, Christopher saying this is the first time we clearly get the Tower of Kirathungal as a separate thing and a thing up on the cliff, uh, uh, you know, up up on the pass, right? So there, uh, we remember him trying to decide whether uh, Minas Morgul was down in the valley or up in the up on the top of the pass, right? And he's now decided no, there should be a tower in both places. Um, but uh, um, anyway, so. Uh, so that's but see again I, I come back to all that topography stuff um, and remember I, I if I remember correctly Christopher had a note on that paragraph in which he says it is now clear that the pass is definitely to the north of Minas Morgul not to the south which he was kind of toying around with right um, yes yes it is now clear that it's on the north. But again, I don't think that this necessarily means that what happened was Tolkien had been weighing his topographical choices, right? And he decided it should be on the north, and then he wrote this passage. It seems to me most likely that he wrote this passage, and when he's describing it, he re- he realizes as he's describing them looking down that they're looking down, and Minas Morgul is off to the right, and he's you know once he actually writes the narrative and 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 puts himself going up the steps. Um, he describes, you know, what he sees unfolding in his mind, and it's Minas Morgul down on their right, right? Um, and so, apparently, the pass is to the north, right? Because Minas Morgul is down on their right. Um, uh, in other words, you shouldn't have spent all that time trying to work out the topography in advance. Uh, you should have just should have just written the narrative, Tolkien. It would have been much simpler. Uh, then fix the map after the fact. Um, do the reverse of your own advice, and things will be easier for you. Okay, so, the trap. What is that tower, said Frodo, full of suspicion? Is there a guard? Then they found Gollum had slipped away and vanished. Frodo is full of fear. But Sam says, well, we're up this something near very top of mountains, further than we ever hoped to get. Let's go on and get it over. Frodo goes forward and Sam follows. Sam is suddenly lassoed and falls back. He calls out, but Frodo does not come. He struggles up and falls again. Something is round his feet. Slashes himself free in a fury of rage. Frodo, master, he cries, and then sees the great spider that has attacked him. He lunges forward, but the creature makes off. Then he sees that there are a great number about, issuing out of the crevices, but they are all hurrying forward along the road, taking no further notice of him. Um, this is kind of fascinating, right? So, okay. Uh, notice the elements here. The first element is 
the separation of Frodo and Sam, right? Um, the one thing that he sees very clearly, Sam gets separated, and he gets separated by being grabbed and held. Um, but notice, the trap is all about Frodo. From the spider's point of view, it's all about Frodo. Um, here's this swarm of giant spiders, which sounds really terrifying, actually. Um, there are a great number issuing out of the crevices, but they are all hurrying forward along the road, taking no further notice of him. So here's Sam, with giant spiders passing him, right? And just descending on Frodo from all around. Um, it is possible, it is possible that, uh, they're doing this because this was the plan, right? Um, that is, they talked to Gollum, right? And Gollum told him, okay, there's going to be two of them. I want you to make sure you... Ca- I mean, is that is that the point? Or is it rather something, Craig, like you're suggesting? Could they feel the ring, right? Um, are they focusing on Frodo because he seems the obvious target, that they are um, they're drawn to the ring that he carries? Do they even understand? Are they doing it on purpose? Is there some... Um, and if so, why? Right? What's there? What's there? But we know why Gollum is betraying them. He's hoping to be able to get the ring from Frodo when Frodo is captured by the spiders. Um, but is that the spiders' plan? Um, yeah, Tony and Jennifer are both thinking about the star glass, right? Who has the star glass at this point? I th- in this outline, I don't think we've been given any indication that it's not Frodo, right? Frodo's the one who had it, and I don't think we've seen him hand it off at any point yet. So it is possible that it's the star glass that they're wanting to go, that they're, they, the star glass is food, right? They want the light, they want to consume the light of the star glass. That seems one reason not related to the ring, you know, one, one good non-ring candidate, right, for, uh, uh, for them to, um, uh, uh, to be, to be converging on, uh, uh, on, on, on Frodo here. Um, possibly, possibly. Um, I, I, but it's, it's very striking, right? It's very, uh, um, remarkable how the spiders deter Sam, right? He gets lassoed, but um, but the spiders then just ignore him after that. Now, I agree, Tara, that lassoed seems like a very untolkien word. One thing I would say, I can't imagine he uses that word in the text, right? This is a this is an outline. These are this is a, a set of notes for himself. Um, it's clear that that's the word that he use. I mean, he uses that word, right? When he wants to describe, when he's trying to jot down what happens to Sam, lassoed is the word that he uses. Um, uh, again, I don't think that that's necessarily the word that would have stayed in the published text. Um, because we've seen him use sort of slangy words before in his notes to himself, uh, which presumably he was... I can't come up with any examples at the time, um, but I seem to remember um, his... Uh, um, his usage of of similar kind of slang words that seemed un-Tolkien-like. Uh, um, 
<laughs> varmint. Yeah. Yeah, varmint was one. Um, now that, but that one was actually in the text, right? That one's different. Um, I'm thinking of ones that he was just, that we saw him using like this in his outlines. Um, but, I mean, one thing I would say, there is clear evidence that as much as Tolkien talks about liking old things and, and you know, the Germanic things and not the... He, he really enjoyed fun words, right? And he seems to have... There seemed to have been uh, Americanisms that he was interested in, uh, uh, you know, and, and slang terms that he was definitely willing to use. Um, uh even if he didn't, even if he, it, they didn't make it into the published text. And Kate, yeah, he did, uh, uh, Kate was noticing that he dropped canyon for ravine, and Jennifer was just asking, didn't he also use the Spanish word for canyon at one point? Yeah, and he, he does it again, actually, uh, using the word uh, canyon with a tilde, uh, right? Um, yes, yeah, he does the Spanish word there again. Um, he does change it, Kate, to ravine, right? Um, let's go with a... Uh, 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 a, a a less exotic sounding word there, um, but um, yeah yeah good. Bruce has uh, uh, given us the etymology here. Lasso, mid eighteenth century. Yeah, so super modern, uh, mid eighteenth century Spanish American pronunciation of a Spanish word. Yep yeah. So it's uh, both American and Spanish, um, and we know that he likes Spanish. We know he's interested in Spanish. But he's not interested in Spanish words, right? Tobacco is from Spanish too, but he's not going to use that word uh, in the Lord of the Rings either. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I agree, Stephen. He's not completely opposed to newer words. Um, obviously, there are many new words or sort of new um, kind of contrivances that he does not like. Uh, there are some words whose society is very much not on, right? But, uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that he, uh, is not interested in or amused by, uh, modern words. Um, anyway. Okay. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Um, right. Sam suddenly sees the spiders coming out of crevices. He can't see Frodo and calls out in warning, but at that moment he is seized from behind. This is, of course, a, a revision from the outline, and we see that uh, the, 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 the cowboy spider that roped him uh, gets immediately replaced. No, this needs to be Gollum. So again, think about this in the context of the development of that relationship. We've seen Sam being suspicious of Gollum all along, right? And now, in this moment... All of his suspicions come to fruition, right? He was right all along. Uh, here, Gollum proves himself a varmint uh, like Sam always said he was. Uh, okay. At the moment he is seized from behind, he can't draw a sword. Gollum trips him and he falls. Gollum tries to get at Sam's sword. Sam has long fight and eventually gets hand on his stave and deals Gollum a blow. This is, of course, still kind of outline-ish, right? He's not writing the full text. Gollum wriggles aside and only gets a whack across his hands. He lets go. Sam is aiming another blow at him when he springs away and, going like lightning, disappears into a crevice. Sam rushes forward to find Frodo. He is too late. There are great spiders round him. Sam draws sword and fights, but they don't seem to heed it. <laughs> I love that. They don't even notice Sam. Right? Sam charges boldly up and they just ignore him. 
Then he found Sting lying by Frodo's outstretched arm. Two or three dead spiders by him. Ah, he seizes Sting and drives off the spiders, Frodo lying as if dead. Spiders have stung him. He is pale as death. Sam uses file. Reminds Sam of his vision in the mirror of Galadriel. All efforts to rouse his master fail. He can hear or feel no heartbeat. He is dead. Sam falls first into senseless rage against Gollum, beating the stones and shouting at him to come out and fight. Then into a black despair of grief. How long he sat there, he never knew. He came out of this black trance to find Frodo still just as he had left him, but now greenish in hue, a horrible dead look with a... something. Sam remembers he himself had said that he had a job to do, wonders if it has come to him now. He takes the file and sting and buckles belt. Sam the two-sworded, he says grimly, prays for strength to fight and avenge Frodo. At that moment he would have marched straight to death, straight to the very eye of Barad-dûr. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> good. Stephen was noticing the alliteration of Sam suddenly sees the spiders, uh, and Carita's, of course, pointing out how then we shift to coming out of crevices. Sam suddenly sees the spiders coming out of crevices. Carita uh, <laughs> says she feels like she's getting diction lessons. Uh, yeah, that is, that is a fairly, uh, that is a fairly remarkable sentence, isn't it? Um, and good, Bruce and Stephen at the same time are asking, praise? Praise to whom? Who is he praying to? Uh, let's see. Praise for strength to fight and avenge Frodo. Um, we don't know. In the published text, he prays to, he prays to Galadriel, right? Um, or, you know, it's at least it's something like prayer to Galadriel, right? Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what we think of it, Craig. Uh we don't really get enough detail there to work on it, to, to, to be able to draw any conclusions there about specifically whom Sam would be praying to. Um, but, um, yeah, Jennifer says the same person Barlaman asks to save him. Maybe. Um, but I, Craig, here's one thing I think about praise. And Jennifer, your comment about uh, Barlaman, for those of you who weren't, who didn't tune in la- last night, um, we're ta- we were looking at that scene when Strider, you know, Strider has just said to Butterbur uh, in chapter 10 of book one, they come from Mordor, from Mordor, Barlaman, if that means anything to you. And Butterbur says, save us, right? That is the worst news that has come to Brie in my time. And we talked a lot about save us, right? Who's he talking to? Right. Is that that seems like a prayer or at least a, a sort of a prayerish thing. Right. Um, who's he praying to if he's praying or what's going on there? But, Jennifer, uh, the difference here, especially when we contrast with Butterbur's exclamation there, this sounds like actual prayer. This is not metaphorical prayer. This is um, uh, he seems to be saying a prayer in real earnest. Again, I'm not sure to whom. Um, it could be Galadriel, it could be Elbereth, Veronica, I certainly agree. Um, but this seems to be an actual prayer. I don't see any reason to interpret this in a non-religious context. Like, there are potentially reasons to interpret Butterbur's exclamation in a non-religious sense. I, I can't see that here. This is seems to be a moment of devotion, though it's dark as well, right? He's He's 
praying for the strength to fight and avenge Frodo. Um, that's pretty, uh, pretty serious there. Um, but okay, actually, no. Since we're there, what's no? Never mind. Let's go back to the beginning of this passage. Um, notice where we are. We still have the multiple spiders, right? And with the multiple spiders, um, notice sort of the kind of story that we're getting here. Um, let me uh, let me explain more what I mean by that. Um, look at first Sam and then Frodo. Like, what is going on here? This is, they are surrounded by giant spiders. Remember, this is not, each one of these spiders is a shelob, right? Each one of these spiders, these are the same spiders that Baron fought, right? Not just a recycling of them. These are the same actual spiders. Baron we're talking about. Baron, one hand, one of the greatest heroes of the First Age, and a bunch of those spiders are clustered. Baron himself would have been toast had he been standing, and all of these spiders were pressing in on him, right? Uh, in fact, we have descriptions in the Lay of Lathian of Baron taking refuge up trees, right, uh, and up cliff sides, hoping that these spiders don't notice him as they're sort of snuffling around uh, on the ground. Um, these spiders are a really big deal, right? And having put these big deals, multiple big deal spiders here in this pass, he has first Frodo brought to bay fighting the spiders off, there are two or three dead spiders. So Frodo has killed two or three shelubs with Sting, right? So Frodo is taken, but only after a heroic fight, right? Um, He, I mean, no, but probably Baron couldn't have even done better than that, right? Better than, than, than Frodo has done. So, Again, just notice how different th- that is from the published text, where Frodo is just taken as he's running and nipped in the back of the neck before he even knows what's happening, and he drops, right? So Frodo barely even remembers Shelob, right? Um, because she just pounces on him in the published text. Um, in His first impulse is to make this a heroic stand, and a reasonably successful one for Frodo, and then Sam comes in. And what happens, Right? Um, Sam, then it makes sense that the spiders ignore him at first, and he comes in with his sword, and he's like, have at you, right? And they're just like, what, his sword is bouncing off them, and they just, they don't even look at him. They're just completely ignoring him. Then he picks up Sting, and then he scatters them, right? He sings, uh, seizes Sting and drives off the spiders. Now, again, this is an outline. We don't know exactly how that's going to go, but dang, he just shoos them away with Sting, right? They, with Sting in the hands of Sam, the spiders run from him. Um, uh, yeah, now, Yana, I agree with you. The more you think about this, the less sense that makes, right? I mean, you can't... Neither Sam nor Frodo really is actually more physically powerful than um, uh, 
than Baron, right? That, that can't, that's not okay, right? That's, you know, that, that, that can't really happen. So totally understandable that he's going to end up changing that. But f- just fascinating that this is the initial impulse, right? That he wants this to be a heroic moment, not only for Sam, but for Frodo as well, right? But then we get the foreshadowing, right? Or rather the fulfillment of the foreshadowing, which it was not at all obvious he saw coming at the time of the Mirror of Galadriel. Soon after that, right? But not necessarily at the time. Um, The vision of Frodo that Sam sees in the mirror. Frodo lying dead. Um, But then he remembers that he himself had said that he had a job to do. Um, when Sam says that back at the beginning, now I'm not slipping a cog, am I? Um, Sam did say that back in a fairly early draft, as I recall, right? Of uh, way back in the Return of the Shadow, um, we had Sam, Sam saying that he's got a he has a job to do and he has to see it through, um, and there was as yet no clue or hint that there's no suggestion that Tolkien knew what that job was that Sam had, right? Um, yeah, somebody can check it for me, but I, I, I seem to remember that, uh, from the return of the shadow. Um, if so, it's another wonderful example. I just love when Tolkien does that kind of thing. It's like the moment in the Hobbit, right? Remember in chapter one of the Hobbit, when the narrator is introducing Bilbo and says, um, you know, this is the story of, uh, uh, this is the story of how a Baggins had an adventure. And he learned, well, you'll see if he learned anything or not, right? And that totally sounds like something that you write when you have the story in your head, right? And so you're setting the readers up to receive the, the, the thing that's going to happen that you already have in mind. But the awesome thing when you look at it is that... Um, you can see in the first draft of the... It's there in the first draft, right? When Tolkien hadn't any idea what Bilbo was going to learn, right? Uh, Tolkien himself... So when he said, when when, when Tolkien wrote that line, um, well, you know, you'll see. You'll, uh, you'll see if he learns anything or not. He's doing it completely on faith. He has no idea himself what Bilbo's going to learn. And I love it when he does that. Um, and it seems that Sam did essentially a very similar thing. And now, now he sees what it was. Now Tolkien himself has understood um, uh, what uh, um, what he had uh, 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 what he was actually referring to without knowing it. Sam's despair um He is seeking death. He would have marched straight to death, straight to the very eye of Barad-dûr. The choice that we see Sam initially making here is between rage and despair. That's his first impulses, right? His first impulse is rage. His second impulse is is a black despair of grief. And we see those two things still at war in that last paragraph, too. Praying for the strength to fight and avenge Frodo, um, and then being prepared to march straight to death. Again, rage 
and despair. Those are the issues for Sam here from the beginning. It'll get a little bit more complicated, right? Um, but that we can see to be the impact from the beginning. Um, looking how Gollum's role is changing. Remember, of course, Gollum going and betraying Frodo and Sam to the orcs and actively recruiting the assistance of the orcs. Now, orcs have captured Gollum. All his little plan of getting Frodo tied up by spiders has gone wrong. They are driving Gollum, the orcs are. Right. That's a note on a separate slip, but uh, uh, Christopher gives us it then because he thinks it explains what's going on here. Noise of approaching orc laughter. Down out of a cleft golem leading comes a band of black orcs. Desperate, Sam draws off the ring from Frodo's neck and takes it. He could not unclasp it or cut the chain, so he slipped it over Frodo's neck and put it on. As he did so, he stumbled forward. It was as if a great stone had been suddenly strung about his neck. At that moment, up come orcs. Sam slips on ring. Frodo cries. Or is Sam's motive simply that, wishing to bury Frodo, he won't see Frodo's body carried off, also wanting to get at Gollum? Okay, things getting really kind of choppy there at the end. A little hard to follow. Um... So Gollum comes back with the orcs, but we see he is no longer, um, Gollum is no longer in active collaboration with the orcs. He certainly has not run to fetch them. They have captured him, and he is being forced to lead the orcs back. Um, uh, I, Arthur, I also admit to being a little bit confused about the business about the chain. Um, of course, he's not going to make such a big deal about the chain in the published text, but this we see this in a couple of these early drafts about how Sam's trying to get the ring off and he can't get it off and he ends up having to take it over uh, Frodo's head. Um, I agree, it seems to me a little bit strange too, Arthur. Why would you think of cutting the chain with what? You know, he's not going to pair shears with him, right? With a knife? Is that what he's thinking? With a sword? Um, yeah, why would you cut a necklace off of somebody's neck with a sword or something, uh, if it was big enough just to slide it over his head, I, I agree. Why is that not plan A? It doesn't make much sense to me either. Um, but uh, the business about Sam crying out when the ring is taken over his hand, right? Uh, as the ring is being removed, he sort of cries out. Um yeah, Marilyn is asking what the orcs want with Gollum at this point. That's not clear. Well, guidance. I'm guessing, uh, just based on what we see from Gollum and thinking of other stories, um, my guess here is that the orcs have captured Gollum, and he is guiding them to where Frodo and Sam are, just to save his own life, essentially. They're going to kill him, and he convinces them not to kill him because he can lead them to the spies that they're looking for, right? Um, I say speaking of other stories, or thinking of other stories, because, of course, you, you, you may notice what that story makes me think of, right? That story makes me think of, of, of meme, right? The dwarf. Um, it seems to me like a kind of memeish moment uh, for Gollum here. I might not be right, but that's what it makes me think of. Um, I love that business about the stumbling forward as if a great stone had been suddenly strung about his neck, right? Yeah. Yeah, good. 
Okay. Another view of Sam's choice. Make Sam sit long by Frodo all through night. Hold file up and see him elvish fair, torn by not knowing what to do. He lays Frodo out and folds his hands, mithril coat, file in his hand, sting at side. So we see Frodo being arranged for burial, first and foremost. Right, And notice this is before he's taken the ring. This is before anything happens. Remember in the published text, Sam makes his decision about what to do first. And then he kind of lays Frodo out. Right um, Here, his only thought is laying Frodo out. Um, then he's got to decide what to do. Right, um, But again, notice how that's already a change. At first... In the first outline, uh, the main thing about Sam's choice was which reaction is he, uh, which reaction is he having, right? Is he um, uh, is he reacting in rage or is he reacting in despair? Um, and uh, the notice how the time has protracted, right? He sits by the body of Frodo all through. Then he's a lot of time to think, and the emphasis is almost entirely on what is Sam, not just Sam's immediate emotional reaction, right? As time goes on, what's he going to do? What is he deciding to do? Um, okay, tries to go on and finish job. Can't force himself to. How to die soon. Thinks of jumping over Brink, but might as well try to do something. Crack of doom? Reluctantly, as it seems, a theft in a way, he takes ring goes forward on the path in a violent sorrow and despair, in margin, Red Dawn, but cannot drag himself away from... Remember, Red Dawn, okay? Right, we're going to cut that out. We're going to put that in our in our cutting drawer, right? <laughs> because that we might want to pull the Red Dawn out again uh, in a future chapter, because we should totally hang on to that one. Anyway, okay. Uh, but cannot drag himself away from Frodo. Turns back. Resolved to lie down by Frodo till death comes. Then he sees Gollum come and paw him. He gives a start and runs back, but orcs come out and Gollum bolts. Orcs pick up Frodo and carry him off. Sam plods after them. Sam puts on ring. It seems to have grown in might and power. It weighs down his hand, but he can see with terrible clearness, even through the rocks. He can see every crevice filled with spiders. He can understand orc speech, but the ring does not confer courage on Sam. It seems they have been warned for special vigilance. Some spy of more than usual importance could try to get in somehow. If any were caught messenger to be sent, file taken. Sam follows up a long stair to the tower. He can, he can see all plain below, the Black Gate and Ithilien and Gorgoroth and Mount Doom. Okay. Um, see what he did here? He focuses on Sam's decision, but in doing that, he locks Sam in indecision, right? Sam can't make up his mind. In a sense, he's still kind of thinking about rage and despair. He considers suicide, as he still does in the published text, right? He thinks of jumping over the brink. Um, Might as well do something. Might as well go to the crack of doom, right? You're going to die anyway. Um, uh, He can't... 
goes forward on the path in a violent sorrow and despair knows he doesn't take the ring, right? Um, uh, well, it's okay. In a way, he takes ring, but cannot drag himself away from Frodo, right? So he takes the ring, but he still can't decide. So we have the impulse of a decision, right? The actual taking of the ring, um, but he's still going to turn back and lie down next to Frodo and die. That's t- and it's not until Gollum comes that the decision is forced. And by the way, notice um, notice Marilyn, the way that Gollum acts here. I think it's pretty clear he is not acting with the orcs. Um, so Gollum comes running in and paws at Frodo, right? Um, and then the orcs come out and Gollum bolts. So it's pretty clear that the orcs are still forcing Gollum. I think that Gollum has taken a desperate chance, right? He has decided to try to save his own life by leading the orcs to Frodo, but you can see his plan, right? His plan is to race there. So he says to the orcs, all right, I'll show you where they are, but he dashes ahead and gets ahead of the orcs because his plan is to get to Frodo's body first so that he can take the ring. From hopefully before the orcs get there and notice, so he, uh, his plan is to get the ring off of Frodo quick, and then the orcs will come and he's like there he is and he'll let the orcs take away the corpses, right? Um, that seems to be what I can gather of Gollum's situation, but he's also far enough ahead that he can escape. So again, that seems to be another part of uh, another part of the plan. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Okay, so the power of the ring here, right? Sam puts on the ring and he can see through the rocks, right? He can see everything. He not only can understand the speech of the evil creatures, he can see the evil creatures even through the rocks. He can see every crevice filled with spiders. There's another delightful image for you, Carita, right? Um, amazing. And Terra, you know, it is X-ray vision, right? Um, he does suddenly sort of look like Superman here. But I don't think it's just X-ray vision. It seems that, like, he... It's, be, it's not just that he can see through rocks in general. He can see the spiders where they are, right? Despite the rocks that are in, in, in between him and them. Um... I don't know that he necessarily just gains the power to see through rocks in general, but rather um, can perceive evil creatures because, um, uh, and like the rocks can't hide them from him, right? It seems to be almost like an extension of the being able to hear and understand them thing, right? Anyway, let's keep going. The fair copy manuscript was built up in stages. From the beginning of the chapter, The Stairs of Kirathungal, as far as Frodo felt his senses reeling, his limbs weakening, it was developed from the original draft, and virtually attained the form in the two towers. But from this point, my father briefly returned to his frustrating practice of erasing his penciled draft and writing the fair copy on the pages where it had stood. This only extends for a couple of pages, however, and some words and phrases escaped erasure, while on the third page the draft was not erased but overwritten, and here much of the original text can be read. This carries the narrative to the point 
uh, Two Towers, page 317, where the host out of Minas Morgul had disappeared down the westward road, and Sam urged Frodo to rouse himself, and there is no reason whatever to think that the lost pages of the draft were other than a more roughly expressed version of the final narrative. The main thing that I want to focus on here, and there's more that we could talk about, um, uh, yeah, good. James, thank you. James has been industriously looking it up in The Return of the Shadow, and uh, we don't get the text of the shortcut to Mushroom's chapter in The Return of the Shadow, uh, but James reports that Christopher says the text is virtually word-for-word word the same as the published text, so therefore, presumably, we do get Sam's dialogue about having a job to do. So, good. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, James. That's probably why I didn't remember it specifically, because it's not explicitly in... Uh, uh, printed in the text. It's just one of those things Christopher tells us is the same. Uh, no, thank you for that. That was great. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, oh, Arthur, you're thinking that uh, uh, that uh, Barlaman Butterbur has a similar power like Sam with the ring, right? Being able to see through a brick wall in time. Uh, it's maybe like that. Maybe not quite exactly the same thing. Anyway. Um... Uh, it's starting to get late, and I want to get through more passages, so I'm going to hurry up a little bit here. Here's one thing that I wanted to take home from this passage. Notice Tolkien's practice here, his writing practice. Uh, and this is a thing that we've noticed before. Remember, this happened with Faramir, right? He doesn't... We see him projecting forward with his outlines and stuff, but he proceeds through the text in chunks, it's not just that we got the debate with, you know, a draft of the the debate with Faramir, and then he moves on, right? He comes through the debate of Faramir, you know, and treachery not the least, and Sam's berating him and all that stuff, right? And then he goes back and rewrites, and then he goes back and rewrites, and then he goes back and rewrites, and he finalizes that text until that text is pretty much the way he's always going to keep it, right? So he finishes that bit and then moves on, even when the bit that he moves on to almost contradicts the one before, right? Again, Faramir, as he emerges in the second half of the Faramir passage, is quite different. The, the earlier thing is all uh, f- uh, Falborn, right? Um, and Faramir, you know, Falborn's lines are given to Faramir, right? Uh, and yet, so he doesn't, because he, he's already done it, he's already written it, and he keeps it and joins it together with the Faramir stuff that he develops later on. But it's one of those things that we see because of the way he'll do that, perfect this chunk, and then move on and perfect this next chunk. So we see that happening in the stairs of Kirith Ungol here as well. And again, this seems to me part of the reason why um, this uh, this whole passage was so sticky for him. All right. Let's look at Gollum's betrayal again. A new version of this. A strange odor came out of it, not the odor of decay in the valley below, an odor that the hobbits did not recognize, a repellent taint on the air. Resigning themselves to fear, they passed inside. <laughs> I kind of like that. Well, we're just going to be afraid, so let's just move forward. Let's, let's, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. Fear is inevitable. It was altogether lightless. After some little time, Sam suddenly tumbled into Gollum ahead of him, and Frodo against Sam. "'What's up now?' said Sam. "'Brought us to a dead end, have you?' "'Dead end? That's good,' he muttered. "'It about describes it.' 
What's up, you old villain? Gollum did not answer him. By the way, can I say that I love how Sam has a conversation with himself? I think that dialogue is all Sam, right? Uh, but this is not it is not a conversation between Sam and somebody else. Like, Sam has all the lines. So it's just like, you know, um, I couldn't help but remember Frodo's line in the published text, right? Um about how he wishes, you know, like, why didn't, why didn't they put in more of his talk, Dad? Um, well, in the original draft, and Sam carries on both halves of the dialogue, so there we go. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Arthur suggests it was a purely Kirithungal joke to call it dead end. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, I love how Sam sees the humor in the, in the, in the dead end. Um, I don't know. Keep going. Sam pushed him aside and thrust forward only to meet something that yielded, but would not give way soft, unseen and strong as if the darkness could be felt. Something's across the path. He said some trap or something. What's to be done. If this old villain knows about it, as I bet he does, why won't he speak? "'Because he doesn't know,' hissed Gollum. "'He's thinking. He d- "'We didn't expect to find this here, did we, precious? "'No, of course not. "'We wants to get out. "'Of course we does. "'Yes, yes.' "'Stand back,' said Frodo, "'and then suddenly drawing his hand from his bosom, "'he held aloft the file of Galadriel. "'For a moment it flickered, "'like a star struggling through the mists of earth. "'Then as fear left him, "'it began to burn with dazzling silver light, "'as if a Arendel himself "'had come down from the sunset paths "'with the Silmaril upon his brow. "'Gollum cowered away from the light, "'which for some reason seemed to fill him with fear. "'Frodo drew his sword, and Sting leapt out, the bright rays of the star-glass sparkled upon the blade, but on its edges ran an ominous blue fire, to which, at that time, Frodo nor Gollum, uh, sort of Frodo nor Sam, gave heed. Um, okay, okay. Um, oh, uh, Jennifer, struggling through the mists of Earth, the reason he says Earth instead of Middle-earth, I think, there, is that... Middle Earth is a horizontal distinction. Earth, he's thinking of a vertical distinction. That is, Middle Earth is is middle because it's in the middle between the east and west, right? Um, It's the great lands in the middle. It's not the far west and it's not the far east, um, you know, where the sun, where the gates of dawn are. Um, It's the great lands in the middle of the world. Um, So again, it's a... Uh, middle Earth is is the middle in this sense, right? When he talks about the light, the light of a star struggling through the mists of Earth, he's thinking vertically, right? The light coming down from the 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 heavens above, right? From the uh, uh, from the the I'm I'm totally blanking. What did he call it in the Ambarcanta? Via it begins with the V. I'm blanking on the V word. Somebody will help me. Um, Vilya. No, Vilya is the name of the ring. What's that what's the thing? That anyway, I forget. Um the Great Sea, right? The of, of which the ocean is like is merely like a puddle. Um uh but anyway, um so it comes down and the, but then as it descends through the, the the air of earth, right, that's where it, it encounters these uh mists that give it 
trouble. So, um, anyway, yeah, there you go. So that's why, that's why I think he just says Earth there. Um, yeah. Mike, that is a really cool observation that uh, the file needs Frodo's courage and takes away Gollum's, right? Yeah, that's really cool. Um, one other thing that I would point to in this... Okay, a couple things in this passage. The betrayal is now involved... With, like, the betra- the the betrayal is suspected by Frodo and Sam when they come to the webs across the path. Remember, the webs across the path were there in that original outline. Uh, and Frodo chopping through with Sting and Sam helping, right? And then they go up the second stair, and there's still more webs across that occasionally, right? Um, so uh, that... This is not a new feature. What is new is the suspicions coming to a head at this point. And um, Vaya, Vaya, thank you. Kimber and James, both of you. Vaya, I knew that was it was close, some, somewhere in that... Um, yes, via. All right, thank you. I was I was in the I was in the ballpark there, um, or did I say that? I don't remember. Whatever. Um, but yeah, Stephen. Now Sam actually interrogates Gollum, and notice is why I emphasized it in my subtitle here. Um, that phrase really jumped out at me twice. He calls him old villain. What's up, you old villain? If this old villain knows it, knows about it, as I bet he does, right? And the reason. Uh, that that jumped out at me is that that's another one of those things that's going to go into the cutting drawer, right? Um, we're not going to get that this conversation here. But do you remember? Does anybody remember the moment when Sam calls Gollum old, you old villain? That phrase comes back in, but it comes back in at a super important time, right? Um, that is the line. Yes, on the stairs, Kate. Exactly. That is the line. That is Gollum's turning point. Right? Sneaking off and sneaking back, you old villain. Right? That's what Sam says that makes Gollum reel back and suddenly cease to look like an aged and tired hobbit and instead look like a spider. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Arthur. Yeah, you got it there, too. Um, so we can see the seeds, right, of that scene. It's not, it's, it's, it doesn't exist yet, right? But we can see uh, the bits that are going to bring it together. So, but, but, see what this means? The line that Sam delivers, the line which is so tragic, right? The line tragically delivered at the very moment when Gollum was on the verge of repenting is drawn from a line that Sam originally delivered in the moment that the betrayal was happening, when the trap was being sprung, right? Um, And that is fascinating to me. Uh, We can see from that how far he is yet in in seeing that kind of a tragic moment, right? Um, Also, it, to me, emphasizes the tragedy as one of the things, of course, that is so noticeable about that, you know, that makes that passage in the published text so painful is that Sam isn't wrong, right? He was sneaking off and sneaking back, and what he was up to was, in fact, villainy. 
where was Sam? Or where was Gollum, rather? Gollum was off talking to Shelob, right? Making plans to betray them. Uh, so, yes, like, guilty as charged, right? Yes, he is a villain. Yes, he was sneaking. Um, again, it's a tragic... It's an accurate accusation, but it's tragically timed, right? And Sam, in his bleariness, waking up from sleep, does not notice or perceive how close Gollum is to repentance, right? That's the tragedy. But again, the connection of Sam's words back to the old revelation of the betrayal shows, again, um, that um, uh, that Sam, again, was it sort of, again, em- emphasized the, emphasizes the sort of justification of Sam's words there, right? Okay, so a lot of the rest of that is similar. We've got, but what's going on with this? The, we get the dialogue is the new thing, right? And of course, I emphasize Sam's words there. But what about Gollum's words? Um, if this old villain knows about it, why won't he speak? Right? Here's Sam saying, "I know." Right? This is this proves you're betraying us. You knew about you let us into this dead end on purpose, right? Admit it. And Gollum says. I didn't know. He's lying, right? Gollum's got to be lying. He knew about this. This is part of the plan all along. This is the trap that he was leading them into. The spiders are just about to take him, right? Right? No. That's not the story, as we go on to learn. We'll keep going. Before them was a grayness which the light did not penetrate. Dull and heavy, it absorbed the light. Across the whole width of the tunnel, from floor to floor and side to side, were something webs. Orderly as the webs of spiders, but far greater. Each thread as thick as a great cord. Sam laughed grimly when he saw them. Cobwebs, he said. Is that all? Why didn't you speak, Gollum? But I might have guessed for myself. Cobwebs. Mighty big ones, but we'll get at them. And then we get the scene, of course, of Sam trying to uh, cut them with his sword and mostly failing. Um, And notice these are still Ungoliant's brood, right? Um, The light doesn't penetrate it. It absorbs the light explicitly, right? We have much more explicitly Ungoliant-esque language here in the description of the webs. Notice how much um, this is starting to look like... um, uh, Notice how how much more this is starting to look like the published text, right? We, We recognize all this stuff, even though it's quite different in its overall structure, right? This is not the end of the tunnel at the top of the stairs. This is not the only thing that stands between them and escape, between them and the pass, as it's eventually going to be. This seems to be an in- to have an entirely different and somewhat surprising function. Anyway, so let's spring the trap again. At length they came to more webs, and when they had cut through these, the tunnel came to an end. The rock wall opened out and sprang high, and the second stair was before them. Walls on either side towering up to a great height, how high they could not guess, for the sky was hardly less black than the walls, and could only be discerned by an occasional glow and flicker of red on the underside of the clouds. 
The stair seemed endless, up, up, up. Their knees cracked. Here and there was a web across the way. They were in the very heart of the mountains, up, up. At last they got to the stairhead. The road opened out. Then all their suspicions of Gollum came to a head. He sprang unexpectedly out of Sam's reach forward, and thrusting Frodo aside ran out, emitting a shrill sort of whistling cry, such as they had never heard him make before. "'Come here, you wretch!' cried Sam, darting after him. Gollum turned once with his eyes glittering and then vanished quite suddenly into the gloom, and no sign of him could they find. Do you think that he... Do you think that Gollum is speaking spider language there? Is that what we're supposed to understand? A sort of whistling cry such as they had never heard him make before. It could just be like a signal, right? Um, he could be whistling like a kettle boiling over, right? Um, like Bilbo accused him of doing in The Hobbit. Um, but the uniqueness of this cry, a sort of whistling cry such as they had never heard him make before, um, is interesting. Right, Mike points out that the Mirkwood spiders sound like kettles, too. Hissing like kettles, yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, it could be, right? Whistling has been associated with the... Whistling sounds, that is, have been associated with the spiders before the, in The Hobbit. Yeah, maybe he's crying out to them in their language here. Um, so that... Gollum's, this was Gollum's plan? All along, Gollum's plan was to take them... So, the tunnel is not the site of the betrayal. Right? There was that... Those walls of webs, which they've been cutting their way through, several in the tunnel, and then on a few on the steps on the way up. Right? The final steps. Now, at the top, he's going to betray them, and he runs forward with this sort of signal. Right? Um, that's that, said Sam what I expected, but I don't like it I suppose now we are just exactly where he wanted to bring us well, let's get moving away as quick as we can the treacherous worm that last whistle of his wasn't pure joy at getting out of the tunnel it was pure wickedness of some sort and what sort we'll know soon likely enough, said Frodo but we could not have gotten even so far without him so if we ever manage our errand, then Gollum and all his wickedness will be part of the plan. Too soon, Frodo. A little too soon for that insight. But yes, you're absolutely right. And notice what an integral part that plays from the beginning. Now notice also that, um, remember that he's already done the first draft of the Cracks of Doom, right? He outlined through to the Cracks of Doom, and we already had Gollum playing a role in it there. But, um... Uh, it's interesting to see how this is all in his mind, right? Um, Gollum's wickedness will have been part of the plan, right? Um, interesting that they get all this time to comment on it, right? Well, that signal couldn't have been good. I wonder what that was. Well, we'll probably find out. Um, by the way, Sam's characterization of that whistle as pure wickedness... Um, strengthens my suspicion that he's speaking spider language, actually. 
So I think we're getting some more information to deal with that question of how does he communicate to the spiders. I think he speaks spider. All right, we'll end after this. It's getting late. As he stood up again, he saw issuing out of a crevice at the, at the left the most monstrous and loathly form that he had ever beheld, beyond his imagination. Spider-like it was in shape, but huge as a wild beast, and more terrible because of the malice and evil purpose in its eyes. These were many, clustered in its small head, and each of them held a baleful light. On great bent legs it walked, the hairs of them stuck out like steel spines, and at each end there was a claw. The round, swollen body behind its narrow neck was dark blotched with paler livid marks, but underneath its belly was pale and faintly luminous as its eyes. It stank. It moved with a sudden horrible speed, running on its arms and springing. Sam saw at once that he was hunting his master, now a little ahead in the gloom and apparently unaware of his peril. He whipped out his sword and yelled, Look out, Mr. Frodo! Look out! I'm... But he did not finish. A long, clammy hand went over his mouth, and another caught his neck, while something wrapped itself about his legs. Taken off his guard, he fell backwards into the arms of his attacker. "'Got you!' hissed Gollum in his ear. "'At last, my precious one, we've got him. Yes, the nasty hobbit. We takes this one, she'll get the other. Oh, yes, Ungoliant will get him, not Smeagol. He won't hurt Master, not at all. He promised.' "'But he's got you, you nasty, dirty little thing.'" Okay, so he doesn't call him Sneak, right? Because the Sneak thing hasn't happened yet, right? That's not a, that's not a tender point for, uh, for Gollum here yet. Um, Stephen asks, "'Huge as a wild beast, what exactly does that mean? "'Is it like the size of a hippo?' <laughs> "'That's an interesting comparison.'" Ah, uh, yeah, size of a hippo. That sounds about right. Um, it's certainly not the size of an elephant or, you know, the size of a, you know, building or something like that. Um, I'm going to guess that the he, right... He was hunting his master. I'm going to guess that's just a mistake. Because Gollum did the she business in his argument with himself earlier on, right? So I I think that um, that's got to be a mistake. I don't think he's contemplating Helob here. Um, Though I'm kind of taken by the idea of Helob, right? Uh, uh, Because, yeah, James, exactly. He goes on to say she. Gollum says she, right? Right away, right? So I, I, I think that that was a mistake. Um, one spider. We're not going to have a bunch of spiders. We're going to have one spider, right? When he gets to this scene again, he realizes we're still going to have spider cr- crawling out of the crevice and coming down to ambush Frodo, but it's only going to be one of them. And... It's ungoliant. It's... I think it's actually ungoliant. 
Tolkien is out of the recycling business, right? I mean, had this been in book one, right, I'd have said all along, like, okay, clearly he's recycling, right? He's got a perfectly good giant spider there in the Silmarillion. He's going to, you know, with a great name, Ungoliant, right? Sounds really excellent. So he's going to... He's gonna, and you're right, Stephen. He never got around to writing about how uh, Arendel kills her anyway, right? That was there were rumors that uh, that Arendel was gonna kill Ungoliant, but never actually wrote the story. Except actually, he kind of does in the Errantry poem. But he changes that, right? So apart from that, we never get the actual killing of Ungoliant. So I, uh, she's still around, right? Again, this sounds like recycling, but remember, we know, we know that he's not recycling anymore. And not only is he not recycling, he's not recycling. He had a reference to Ungoliant, right, in his notes before. Um, the fact that we were, rec- like, the, 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 the narrator's text, right, description of the spiders... And we got, and he launched into that text, which explicitly recalled Baron fighting them Alf in the West. Right? We're not just recycling Silmarillion tropes. He is using the proper nouns. He's alluding to the stories. Uh, that that there is no question that the firewalls are open, the floodgates are open, the Silmarillion world and the Lord of the Rings world are working together. I can therefore only conclude that he is really suggesting this is actually Ungoliant that is attacking Frodo here. Um, And yes, Kate, he is going to have the light of Arendel in his hand, right? Um, Another reason I think that Another reason to suspect that this is really ungoliant, right? Now, I agree that uh, she's smaller than ungoliant as described uh, in the Silmarillion. Um, But yes, Yana, I suspect she has shrunk in the absence of light. Um, That she... uh, Because remember, and we we have reason to think that, right? In the Silmarillion description... When she consumes the light from the trees, she swells to enormous size, right? Um, presumably, therefore, when she is in a famine period, uh, being starved of light, she would contract, she would shrink. Um, presumably, that process would not go on indefinitely, um, or she'd become a gnat, right? Uh, so I don't think that that necessarily would happen, but um, but she, yeah, she's smaller, um, I think this is ungoliant diminished. This is ungoliant um, near the like uh, unhappy tail end of her existence. Um, yeah, even ungoliant dwindles exactly, Tom, as time goes on. Right? Yeah. No, I see that. Um, so. Yeah, compared to, you know, Ungoliant when she bound Morgoth in webs, right, and threatened him and had to be beaten off by the Balrogs uh, at Lamoth, um, Ungoliant has come down in the world, right? But 
How amazing is it? How amazing is it that Gollum has struck up a relationship, right? A partnership with Ungoliant herself. Not the last child of Ungoliant to trouble the unhappy world, but with Ungoliant herself. Um, And it also explains why... um, you know, Jennifer asks, why would she be intimidated by the star glass? I think she's intimidated by Frodo wielding the file, right? The way that the file flares up in response to his own spirit and his own courage. Um, but um, she's attracted to it. She wants to eat it. Uh, and And we see some pretty clear references to that in some of the passages that she's actually going for Frodo because he has the file, not despite it but because he has it at first. Um, so yeah, she, she, uh, she quite wants to eat it. Um, yeah, very good. Okay. All right. It's, uh, uh, it's dawn in the Netherlands. So it's time for us to, to, uh, say good night here. Um, we'll leave it here much more ungoliant to talk about next time, much more, uh, of, uh, Kirithungal to do, uh, do keep reading forward. Remember what a good job we did catching up before. We'll catch up again, but I didn't want to rush the Ungoliant chapter, you know, the, the uh, uh, Kirithungal stuff. So this is, uh, this is big. So, yeah, so next week, no class next week, because next week I am going to be, uh, by this time, I, I should be somewhere uh, in a plane over the Atlantic. So um, uh, on my way over to London, Moot, looking forward to getting a chance to, uh, uh, to meet some of you over there. Um, and, uh, uh, Yana, I promise I won't keep you up uh, until six o'clock in the morning, uh, uh, over the weekend. Anyway, so that's going to be great. Um, so no class next week, but I will be back, uh, the week after. So the first week of May, what is it? May 2nd, um, we'll have, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll return, uh, to Shilab and to Kirithungal then. So thanks very much, everybody. And I will see you guys in a fortnight. Bye now.